You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, I'll tell you what, before we take our break, let's start. Uh, uh, I'd like to um, take questions and talk about some of these issues for a few minutes before we take a break, if that's all right. And I wanted to ask Gary Wolf to join us. Gary is, there's a chair. Grab a chair. Yes, chair. Okay. Gary is visiting from Chicago. He is uh, one of the leading and most serious science fiction critics. And while we had him here, and we're talking about a field of three or four, uh, <laughs> oh, um, I thought while we had him here, we would uh, <laughs> we would try to uh, pull him into a little bit of this. So, um, if anybody has any questions, just uh, shout out. But I I thought I'd just ask by asking Amelia the origins um, of this book and when did you when. Did, there's a there's a mix of comedy and horror in this book. Um, is this does this come out of the material, or is this something you brought to it? Well, uh, it's I guess the short version is it's complicated, um, and and the long version is it's because I'm insecure. Um, I hadn't realized entirely at the time I was writing it that I was writing a horror novel. It had sort of gone over my head. I mean, I thought I was writing a romantic comedy. Um, but there About was, dead people. There was just a lot of gore right. in it. Yeah. And, and, and throughout, you know, I mean, people presume that zombies are dead, but I have one character who, who's, you know, seeing stuff that makes them believe the zombies are dead, and another character who's seeing stuff that makes them think, well, of course zombies aren't dead. So, you know, people act in accordance with their beliefs and they get their beliefs from what they see and think. Um, the comedy part is happened for two reasons and one is because people are funny and, and they have to make jokes to get through life. Um, and the other part was because I thought, you know, if at any point this completely ludicrous plot falls apart, I will have the comedy as a through line. <laughs> All right. Well, that sort, of, that sort of makes sense. Gary, since you're here, uh, can you say something about uh, what you, th the, the subgenre, this uh, horror in general, but uh, zombie horror, I mean, um, what's your take on that? I, well, I, okay. Um, it's, it's an unusual genre in, in that uh, there's a certain amount of folklore behind it, certainly the Haitian zombie, uh, the, the Wade, what's the guy's Wade name? Davis. Wade Davis book. Um, but among the other horror genres, and I don't read a lot of zombie stories, there was a bunch of them back in the 70s, of course. The modern zombie story seems to have been largely the invention of George Romero, uh, something that came to us from movies rather than from uh, prior literature. Oh. And um, and what we're getting is something that's fairly unusual, which is kind of a back formation of, of a literature acting out a mythology which was developed over a period of time by, by filmmakers. Well, that's interesting. Were you aware of that? 
that's pretty much how I did my research for this. I mean, I, I read a <laughs> bunch of zombie movies? stuff, but I, I watched a bunch of movies, and I got to deduct that time. Like, I'm doing research. I'm not just, you know, sitting on the couch getting drunk watching movies. I'm, I'm working here. So there's not a Brad Stoker... Um, if you go, you know, the classic traditions of, uh, of horror fiction, you know, vampires, some werewolf novels, uh, Frankenstein, which is technically a science fiction novel. Mm. Um, I'm, and again, I, this is not a field I'm a, I pretend to be an expert in, but I don't know of any classic zombie fiction uh, probably before about the 1950s or so. Who would that be? Um, depending on how you read Richard Matheson's I Am mm -hmm. Legend. Ah. Uh. Okay, yeah, Matheson has to come into mm. this, right? Oh. That, that was a hugely... See, there, there are zombie-like... It's interesting because I was thinking of, uh, of the same thing going on uh, with, uh, with Marx talking about child soldiers. That's, that's a transformation uh, imposed upon somebody who's unwilling to have the transformation. It's about people in, in liminal states. Like Amelia mm -hmm. said, zombies are both alive and not alive. These children are both soldiers and children. You're not supposed to be both things at the same time. And they're both, interestingly enough, stories about loss of innocence. Um, sometimes imposed, sometimes, you know, uh, by pure accident as a, as a function of disease, sometimes as a function of what kinds of horrible things uh, adults do to children. So if you go back and look at that, yeah, there are lots of zombies in mainstream literature. You can find um, uh, zombies in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. He thinks he's a zombie at some point in the novel. Oh, really? You can find... Uh, well, the other early 50s novel that comes to mind, which is not technically a zombie novel, is, um, oh, Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers, which mm -hmm. became four films called, I think, I think there's been more movies made out of that than any other <laughs> single science fiction story. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, those people are zombies. They're just science fiction zombies rather than uh, Wade Davis zombies. <laughs> Interesting. What do you think, Mark? You, yeah, I mean, what we're talking about, about uh, trans about people being transformed against their will and where they have this, um, well, I don't know, and also just about the history of the, the genre, you know, like what? Well, at least for me, zombies are, I'm a huge zombie fan and a big zombie movie fan, and I think primarily of it is coming from film. Um, I think that, I, I view the zombie genre as far more dealing with a, uh, not so much transformative experiences as death. Zombies are, you know, I'm, I'm a purist on zombies. They should shamble, not run, for example. You know? <laughs> I, I'm a big believer in that. But, uh, and, and the reason is that the point isn't that they're going to get you because they're clever or smart or anything else. That's the beauty of zombies. They're going to get you because they just never fucking stop, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's the whole idea, and that's death. Death is going to get you. No matter how clever you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter where you go, death is going to get you. And zombies are going to get you the same way. And I think that's the, the great appealing power of the zombie film is that you can watch these amazing struggles with these amazing things and then these pretty stupid entities, you know, just kind of <laughs> plodding along, uh, eventually get through. They're gonna get and, and that's the that's the power. Death death is a is a not a very intelligent pursuer. It's just a relentless one that's gonna get you in the end. Yeah, Tennessee Williams once said, Death doesn't knock, it just comes in the door. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well your zombies that's your zombies aren't quite that stupid, are well, they? Well they're not they're not quite stupid, but they're pretty stupid. I mean, I, I, I was enamored of the really frightening, you know, speed zombies from like 28 Days Later right, that, right. that are fast and they're going to find you and they're going to kill you and you're not even going to know what happens until it. And I thought, 
you know, the kind of people that can live through that are armed and they have bunkers and they're, you know, they're very serious about what they do. And my characters aren't that. They work at Trader Joe's and they have, you know, they're overly concerned about their relationships and, and they don't really own guns or know how to survive. And so I had to slow the zombies down so that the keep people could keep up with them. So you're immediately doing a, a sort of a, a new take on a genre that barely exists. <laughs> right? Yes. Well, the, the, um, I like to say that, that the, the, the sexuality, because this is my new take, is, is that it's a sexually transmitted disease, that there's a sort of pheromone thing that makes people horny and, and, and it has to do with how the disease propagates. And, and I figure the, um, the sexualization in in zombie stories has been around for a while, but it's been around at a sort of distant, you know, zombie strippers. Mm-hmm. It's kind of gross. It's kind of funny. It's kind of ironic. It's not really us, and so we can look at it, and it, you know, it's not our problem because it's those people making their bad decisions. And I wanted to foreground rather than background the kind of bad decisions that we make in our lives when we're coerced, when we don't know what we're doing, when we get bitten against our better judgment. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what happens. Um, I mean, basically what you're saying is when you get horny, you make bad judgments. Well, yeah, that's actually and that's been studied. Yeah. That's actually been studied. It's been studied by everyone here. Everybody studied that. I mean, right. sitting up here tonight might have been one of those. Studied with some eagerness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, but well, the other interesting thing about the early zombies, who's, who's the guy who made uh, I Walked with a Zombie back in 1943? Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, those zombies were metaphors for slavery. They were clearly obedient you know, automatons uh, who were not really threatening at all. They were frightening, but the, the movie itself is a different kind of horror movie. And uh, there were a few zombie stories during the 40s in places like Weird Tales that kind of zombies became essentially killer robots on the hands of some mad scientist. Uh, that went away with Romero. Uh, the, the zombies as slave metaphor is pretty much gone from zombie literature and films as far as so I know. So they were autonomous in a certain way at that point. Uh, they became Fido. A, they, Fido. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Fido's That's zombies true. as, you know, house right. gardeners. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a fun movie if you don't know. Oh, it's uh, great. It Let's all get a drink. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 before we do. She referenced the Jamaican-style or the uh, Caribbean-style zombie when she did the back-to-back belly-to-belly. Right. That was, oh, that's the other thing. That yeah. was, uh, I don't know who recorded that first, but that it's was a big hit. Jamboree? Zombie yeah. Jamboree. Harry <laughs> Belafonte, 1953 or so. Oh, yeah. Kingston Trio. Kingston Trio did it, too? I think they did, not they? They definitely did it. Yeah. yeah. Well, who's okay. the, the famous <laughs> underground um, uh, Austin musician, Ro- Rocky Erickson? Uh, he did a, uh, a movie called Walked with a Zombie. Uh, a, a song called I Walked with a Zombie. Yeah. Those are the only lyrics. The what? Those are the only lyrics, by the way. Oh. Well, that's what he did. Yeah, right? yeah. I yeah. Walked with a zombie. Yeah. Well, at one point he says, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just saw him in concert and he forgot the lyrics. <laughs> he, he, did he did a actually, lot of acid in the day. Yeah. 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 Rocky did a lot of acid. Clarifies the mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> for a while. Forget a, a, a five-word lyric. <laughs> <laughs> he looked back at his bass player and was like, uh, 
I walked with a, a bunny? Bunny? No. <laughs> There's a Rocky Erickson flavor combo at Amy's Ice Cream in Austin, and it is the weirdest mishmash of shit you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> apparently his favorite, but mad. Well, that's what I love about this series. There's not many places where a third of the people know who Rocky Erickson is. <laughs> and you're not a, Right, right. Uh, but let's do, let's take five minutes, and then we'll continue this discussion. Because okay. uh, actually there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about. It'd be kind of fun. But we have to drink or else Rena will not invite us back. The right. children will all die unless we take a drink. <laughs> or they'll be recruited into the military. Uh, and the, the, yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody in a zombie. I just wanted to invite everyone here, everyone out there on the airwaves, whoever ends up listening to this before next Sunday, um, to personally invite each and every one of you to Tachyon Publications' 15th anniversary party next Sunday at Borderlands Books. Been in business 15 years, uh, saving the world one good book at a time, as it were. And uh, we've got a long way to go, <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to be in business for a long time. But uh, the party is at Borderlands Books at 866 Valencia Street between 19th and 20th from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, we'll be giving away a uh, special chapbook we've had printed up for the occasion, sure to be a collector's item. Uh, we will have a couple special guests, authors John Kessel and James Patrick Kelly, flying in uh, for the weekend. They're going to be there. On an uh, airplane. They're coming on an airplane. Yeah, well, you know, they are wonderful, but I don't think they could get here otherwise. Give uh, John flat. Yeah. <laughs> John has to work. Yeah. And uh, they are great friends and uh, editors with uh, some of Tachyon's publications, such as The Secret History of Science Fiction, uh, Rewired, a post-cyberpunk anthology, and Feeling Very Strange, a definitive slipstream anthology. And they are great fun. So um, they'll be there, a few other special guests. Terry, now I've committed you. <laughs> uh, Dick Lupoff, Peter Beagle, a uh, whole bunch of people. We'll have our special Tachyon uh, anniversary cake, which is a uh, chocolate cake with rum. It's delicious. Uh, food and snacks. And above all, we'll be giving away the eighth annual Emperor Norton Award for creativity, above and beyond the constraints of paltry reason in literature uh, with a San Francisco flavor. So it's a very individual award. It's got a great, uh, great picture of Emperor Norton. And you get the whole background on just who Emperor Norton is. And so we'll be giving that away as well. Charlie and it, Anders won it last year, right? Uh, I'm not sure. Was yeah. that last year? Yeah. So yeah. many, many. Corey Doctorow, strange it can be. Lots, lots of people and, have, and have won. And we'll have a new kitten. Yes, and there will be another cat to look at, and we will, I, I would take this moment to have just a, a little remembrance of Ripley, who has always participated in our parties fully by leaping from lap to lap while we sit and hear authors read, um, but Ash and the new kitten will be there. So anyhow, so that is this Sunday, the 19th, uh, from 2 to 6. Hope to see you there, and there's more information about it on our website at sfnsf.org. Thanks, and see you there. All right, well, we just wanted to hang out a few minutes before everybody went home, and uh, we had a couple of interesting readings, and uh, if anybody has any comments or questions, no. Uh, <laughs> Troublemakers. Yeah. Um, did you actually go off in the Zeppelin and, as part of your research? 
You know, I've been asked this question before, and I'm really tempted to lie about it. Um, and say no. <laughs> my, sh my sugar daddy would be really upset about if I really told you. No, um, I did a lot of research. Um, and That wasn't a question. Did you go on this I have not yet. So as far as I'm concerned... Everything I wrote is the gospel truth. So you don't know if there's a window and a high ceiling in the bathroom? I do, I do. There's a lot of pictures online. There's a lot of people <laughs> who have done this. And, of course, they take pictures. And I needed to know a lot about what that bathroom was going to look like on account of all of the important things that was going to happen there. I've got a number of scenes that happen in bathrooms because I figure... <laughs> it, why not take the only place that you know you are going to be safe and alone and make bad things happen there so that you are afraid of that? But actually... This is not like potty training, then. <laughs> not quite like potty training, no. I actually had uh, the photo on my desktop for a very long time was a... Um, while I was writing the book, was somebody's Flickr picture of that airborne toilet. I have to ask a question. Being a non-local, does everybody in the Bay Area know about this Zeppelin? Is that something you're just not telling us about in the rest of the country? No, you never heard of it before? It's a, it, there, there really is a Zeppelin. Right? There's blimps. There's no Zeppelin. No, no, there, no there's, there's a Zeppelin. Zeppelin. It there's flies from both the Oakland Airport and the Monterey Airport and comes around around the city, across the Bay Bridge, around the city in a loop, out over the Golden Gate Bridge, and then flies back. And from my back deck, every once in a while, I'll walk out and go, What does it say on it? Good future. There's a Zeppelin. <laughs> I, I can't, it does, it's not close enough that I've ever seen it, but it's a big, long, it's a Zeppelin. It's, it's, it's a and rigid they, frame. Rig, are, that's a Zeppelin, a rigid frame. Get, uh, Zeppelin service started from San Francisco to L.A. and then hope that it catches on again. Uh, it's no longer hydrogen. Yes, oh. it's helium. Oh, well, that takes the fun out of it. <laughs> I was going to say the, the, the good name for it would be all the humanity. <laughs> all, right. all right, well, back to literature. Enough about no. Zeppelins. Mark, uh, the, I felt like I cut you guys off a little bit, and I'm sorry, but um, I, I, I couldn't get a sense of what the... Is is what's the shape of this book? Does it, it does it take place on the ground with these? I mean, you explained a little bit about the alternating chapters, but what's the storyline? What's the arc? Sure. So the storyline of the book is that John uh, John Moore, my protagonist, whose best friend is a machine, an artificially intelligent machine. My uh, homage to Tom Swift's Trifibian Atomicar. It's a an predator class assault vehicle, eight meters wide, twenty five meters long, that happens to house. Uh, perhaps the smartest brain in the universe. It's his best friend. My characters are pretty alienated. You know, when your best friend is a metal killing machine, you know, you've got some social issues to work on. Mm. And uh, <laughs> he does. He gets a call from somebody he owes a favor to. And the uh, first line of the book, uh, I think actually I have it. I think the first line of the book is, uh, um, if, let me get it right. Uh, I believe it is, if I, if I show you, you'll be in. And this is a character from his past who knows that he has a weakness for issues related to children, asks him to come help with these child soldiers, wants him to be a team leader and uh, help them get in, wants his ship, 
and their first part of the book, um, he, I don't write military stuff. We were talking about during the blogcast. My publisher uh, markets it that way because that's something Bain knows. But if you ask any of the people who write military SF, it's not what I do. I write stories that are basically PI books merged with SF. So if you read uh, James Lee Burke, I think one of the brilliant writer in my opinion, his uh, Dave Robichaux is a guy with a military background who's a cop and at times a private investigator. Nobody calls it military science fiction. He gets involved in a lot of different things. That's my character who has a military background, but I don't tend to write it. This is actually the closest to military SF I've written in that for the first part of the book, John goes and helps lead an assault on a fort where, for reasons that the plot makes sense, all these child soldiers are housed for one night mm -hmm. uh, during a, a basically a peacekeeper inspection. They rescue the kids, and then the book changes. And uh, science fiction is full. Uh, as is mystery of, of plot arcs that are basically the American monomyth. The hero rides into town, the hero possesses special skills that are necessary to address the problem, usually violent skills. The hero uses those <coughs> skills and then at the end the hero has to leave because the skills that make the hero useful to solve the problems are not societally acceptable. Mm. They also make this person someone you do not want next door, and so it is crucial that the hero leaves. This is why PIs move in and out of the society, but they live in an outsider society. This is why so many heroes move in and then leave at the end. And I wanted to play with that a little bit, because even though I was working in that sort of thematic or, or structural genre, I wanted to play with it. And so the most interesting question about uh, an American monomyth character is what happens when that character has to stay or decides to stay. And this was the perfect avenue because in the backstory of the book there's a, a set of interwoven chapters talking about how John went from being a mentally challenged 16-year-old with the intelligence of a five-year-old. He was healed by his empathic sister, empathic healer sister, and made quite special. How he became the person he is, how he was trained to kill. And so there's his story the child soldiers, and then there comes a point where he's there, he's done, and they say, bye, leave, and he realizes he can't. Mm -hmm. That This is really spoken to him, and so he asks to stay, and they say to him quite correctly, and this was another problem for me structurally, you do not have the training to be a counselor to help these children. Because you can't write a story where you just suddenly give somebody special abilities they didn't have, I believe. You can't just make shit up that isn't internally consistent, and that isn't what his skill is, or he'd be better off himself. And so he agrees to do whatever they need, janitorial work, guard duty, whatever, which is what he ends up doing. He ends up cleaning and uh, walking patrol, but he wants to stay and help. It turns out, of course, that his special skills do help. And eventually, at the end of the book, he leaves. But I got to play with the American monomyth structure, keep him there, while in the course of the book showing that uh, some of the issues and challenges in rehabilitating and reintegrating the child soldiers. And he has a special connection to these kids and uh, ends up talking with them, ends up dealing. And there's, a, there's actually a pivotal chapter thematically, probably the the high point, but it's only about two-thirds of the way through, where uh, one of the children dies, uh, and um, he interrupts the eulogy and talks to the children directly about what really happened, and the, the counselors don't like it. He's breaking a lot of rules, but he is the one among them who has been that, and so that was what he could bring. So it was a, it was a bit of a structural, you know, literary mashup, because hey, why not, and then um, the, the different threads. 
Well, the Shane is, is the, the, I'm thinking of Shane. I'm thinking of Jack Sure, Schaefer of course. That's the classic. And Shane is interesting because it was, it was not published as a YA novel, but it's a YA novel now. It's like all these retrofitted YA novels, you know, Lord of the Flies and Catcher in the Rye. The story you just described, uh, outside of the vagaries of publishing, because Bain doesn't do this, why isn't it a YA? Um, well, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's a pretty dark book. There are no curse words in this particular series. Most of my book, you, most of what I write uh, outside the, this novel series, you kind of need to appreciate all the words or you won't like it. But in this book, I, I haven't. But it is a very dark series, and I think um, maybe it could be a YA. I don't know, but that certainly isn't what Bain did. I think it's a little too dark for that. I think it's more dealing with the uh, adult side. What I've found in, in reader mail and everywhere else is that the audience uh, that it's uh, spoken to a lot are people who have had abuses and traumas in their past. I've gotten mail about this from cops, from trauma workers, from vets, from mm. abused children, from raped women, um, because part of the book is about the fact that you can't talk about this shit, yeah. that the world does not want you to talk about it. And part of what I'm trying to do in, in the blog entries and the afterword of the book and in the book is say that's bullshit. Yes, you can. And if society doesn't want to hear what you went through, then that's their problem that the world needs to hear because maybe then we would stop allowing this shit. Maybe if we allowed our discomfort to increase a little bit, we would be more vigilant. We would listen more to the victims. We would help create structures that would stop some of it. And if nothing else, we would appreciate those who pay those prices. So. Well, you, you say the the American monomyth, and I'm, um, I mean, I can see what you're talking about in terms of the Western or in terms of the James Fenimore Cooper or a lot, but does this, uh, does this carry into science fiction also? I guess it doesn't. Oh, right? absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, most science fiction heroes, particularly uh, series heroes, but in, in many books, they got to leave at the end because the actions that they take, the things they're willing to do, are things that taint them. Right. You know, violence is a fundamentally soul-scorching thing. I mean, when you commit acts of violence, it, it changes you. And if you haven't ever committed violence, um, you know, I, it, it does. You do things, and then you remember them, and they're always with you. And, uh, you know, I have a, another one of the pieces I didn't read because it's a, a bit rougher. One of the, the lessons was involved a time that I um, led a group of people to beat up uh, two guys who had hurt one of ours. Uh, I was 12 years old. And uh, that night when I was 12 years old, I went home and I picked pieces of their face out of my knuckles, which it turns out you get pieces of cartilage when you mm. hit somebody enough times. And I'm not... That's not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to defend it. In the same circumstances, with the same training that I had, I would have done it again because they picked on one of mine and you don't get to fucking pick on one of mine, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way that is. But you, those things that taint you make you not fit well in society, and science fiction is full of that, uh, whether it's in the literature, in the movies, anywhere. Heroes need to leave. They need to hang with their own type you know, they, it doesn't matter. Once you've done a certain class of things, you need to not be everywhere. Uh, Joss Whedon's Serenity, okay? Relatively lighthearted romp on certain areas, not always, right? But in that movie, the, it, it, is, it is the instinctual understanding of the writers that those people can't just settle down and raise kids, 
right? That's not who they are. And, and that's, it doesn't matter where you look, I think, in the literature, yes, uh, people well, need to come and go. We have a historical novelist in our midst. Is, is this, you think this is true historically? Is this a, a, a theme in world literature as well, or is this an American? Literature, the literature that comes out of history, not not history itself. Yeah, I think so. I think, as we said, that uh, heroic deeds place you outside the normal range of human endeavor. That the uh, I, I, you see this all the time in the westerns, where the the, the the ranchers or the homesteaders are really glad to see the guy come in and blow away the thing, but then they want him to leave and go over the next hill. I mean, Right. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, yeah. the other thing is that in in real history, in the in, or the real past, most of the people who did this kind of thing were kids. The mm. people who went to the Crusades were kids. Yep. The people who fought under William the Conqueror were kids. And um, how do you find kids? The majority is fourteen in the Middle Ages. By the age of fourteen, you have like Frederick II become, you know, uh, king of Sicily and. Baldwin the Leper becomes king of Jerusalem, and I just ran into a tw and great example in um, uh, one, of, one of the one of the I can't remember his name right now. But one of the Viking guys is having a big row with his kid, and his kid says, "Just give me a ship and I'll leave. Give me a ship and I'll leave." And he says, "Okay, take a ship and leave, you little bastard." And the kid goes off and becomes the Earl of the Yor Earl of the Orkneys. He's twelve. But his younger brother says, if he's going, I'm going too, and he takes off. That's Rolf the Gonger. He founds Normandy. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the age of children, obviously it changes. But I, I had a fan letter a few days ago from a guy who said, I just read the book. It really spoke to me. When I went to Vietnam, I was 18 years old, not technically a kid, but I hadn't, didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And I think throughout history, you know, fucking old men have been sending young people off to die. And it's just the nature of things. Because, and in part, it's because that's what they're brought up to believe is valuable. That's how you yeah. become a man. Well, they still choose to do it. Yeah. Jeremy. Well, I think the age of, of, of how we define children kind of speaks to Amelia's book because, like, a lot of the late 20th century is about the expansion of childhood in American society. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And your protagonists are essentially still adolescents. Yeah, you know, they're 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 not the competent heroes. They're sort of the they're the, they're the people the, without skills. They're the bumbling zombies. That's yeah, that's the secret. Well. Is is the protagonists are themselves zombies. They're in their mid twenties. They've really got no idea how to live life, and they've been on their own for a couple of years at least. But it's that you know sort of post college moment where you're finally the one who's got to be responsible for your decisions and and now what do you do and and one of the funnier aspects of the book actually is the fact that these are the people who think they can deal with life from what they've learned from movies right. they, they all know the Romero movies they all know this is what you do and at some point they have to learn to make this distinction no you know what what's in the movies one of my favorite lines is in the movies, they all have plenty of plywood lying around to nail up the windows. Where's the plywood? Four by eights. Go to Home Depot. I just got back from um, from a, a family reunion in Kentucky, and we took we went to a Confederate graveyard, and there were four stones all together of uh, these young men that had been killed in the same battle. Three of them were sixteen, and one of them was fourteen. Mm -hmm. You know, and it and it was like. 
I mean, how do you define what Jeremy is saying? We've extended childhood, but we've also, in, in many ways, reduced it. We don't send fourteen-year-olds now, but uh, they do in we these child eight. armies, right? I was going to say, what's the difference between a fourteen-year-old and an eighteen-year-old? Not that much. Fourteen-year-olds now. I don't know. What when you talk about these child soldiers, these these kids are eleven, right? Um, in in the Congo, for example, they start kidnapping and pressing children into duty at seven, eight years old. Um, the child. This is a whistle from Falling Whistles, the charity I um, partnered with here, and uh, the reason for the whistle is their symbol is that the guy who founded the thing went to the Congo, and they found out that uh, there. Uh, when they are recruiting the children, there are some kids that are so small they can't carry weapons. Mm. They just can't reliably carry them and shoot them. Or uh, there's also another problem, which is they run out of ammunition, or ammunition becomes very scarce. So what the, the rebel fighters that kidnap the children do is they give them little whistles like these. They send them into the front lines. Mm -hmm. And if the tr children try to run, they shoot them in the back. If the children don't, then their job is to blow the whistle, you know, give it up. Right um, when they see the enemy, until the enemy has shot them enough that they die, mm -hmm. and so they are uh, referred to as ammo soakers. Which, by the way, is a term that was applied to the Marines in World War II. You can find planning minutes where they're talking about the Pacific Theater, and generals were saying, "Well, we'll send in the ammo soakers to deplete the enemy's stores." And these were our Marines that we were sending in and killing uh, by the thousands. And so these kids are sent in with only whistles. And these are kids typically, in this particular case, eight years old is the typical age. Well, in terms of literature, which that's my job, right? <laughs> um, but uh, Heinlein enters into this, right? Is, is he the origin of military SF? I don't know. How, how do you define military SF? I'm, I mean, you define it by being sort of out of it. If You're on you, the edge of it. Yeah, I, I don't think I write military SF at all. No, but um, I mean, but you you have to distinguish yourself because you're in that. Well, I have to distinguish uh, myself because Bain markets me that right. way. Right. Well, um, and, and, and it and it works, and that a certain number of people pick them up. But I think what I'm is it that you're? It. But what is it that you're distinguishing yourself from? I mean, it it is a a a real subgenre, right? Yeah. Oh, I agree, and I think if. The best definitions I've seen are that science fiction that is in a military setting that is intimately about and involved with the military process. I mean, I go to BoucherCon, a mystery convention, and sell books at BoucherCon and have readers of mine who come to BoucherCon because I'm really writing PI-ish novels. Mm. Uh, I think of myself as fusing the what I say is a PI armature and a science fiction drape, um, and that's the, the fusion because I love both genres. And I, and I think there's a lot of great crossover work. Military SF is very different from adventure SF. You know, David Drake's Hammer Slammer is a great example of pure right. military SF. And I don't write anything near that. And I have not served in the military. Right. right. I, I was going to say the other writer that comes to mind immediately is Joe Haldeman, who spent sure. virtually his entire career getting out from under that mantle of military SF, which I think the way you've defined it is essentially what I would think of as militaristic SF. It deals with military values. It deals with mil It celebrates the military in a way that well, an anti-war novelist doesn't. No, see, and I would argue that if you read David Drake's Hammer Slammer's books, there is no point at which he celebrates war. 
There is no point at which he glorifies war. He does show the horror of it. His characters do fight with honor and with each other, but it's it's not militaristic at all. Dave is okay. uh, is oh, is okay. an, as as rabidly anti-war as anybody I know, and is as furious at having been sent to Vietnam as anybody I know. Mm. Well, he did his duty. Yeah, hmm. Jeremy. It seems like you're just not defining it in terms of, of jargon and setting. Like in the, the same way you might just describe like seafaring fiction. To some degree, yeah. Uh, so it's about the, the knots and the, the accoutrements of that, that trade. Right. I mean, to, here, take an Alistair Reynolds book, right? Mm-hmm. An Alistair Reynolds book will have action. There will be violence. In, in most of his novels. There will be uh, various kinds of intrigue. There will be politics in which there are military presences, right? Now, is he writing military SF? No, he is not. I have the exact same traits. I'm marketed that way. I would argue I'm not. Dave's uh, Leary Mundy books are Hornblower, <coughs> right? Uh, they are not military SF. His Hammer Slammers are military SF. At least that's how I would define the genre. Well, I think it's military because it gives you action and interest, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I don't think that um, Amelia's got killing in her books, right? Mm-hmm. She is not writing fiction about killing; she is writing about other things. But action, you know, does keep a story going along. And and I think our essential role as storytellers is to, and that's what I think is at the core of what we're doing is to do what storytellers have done since we were huddled in caves wondering why the lightning struck him and not me. Which is lock people in the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Which which is to help provide another way to possibly understand what the fuck is going on in a world that seems so cruel, so indifferent, and in which we are ultimately going to die. And this is something that storytellers have always done. They help make sense of the world. and, And I think that this is, there are many different ways to do that. But uh, I think the historical writers, the writers who are writing about military parts, partly they're doing it because they know it, partly because it's really cool stuff to write about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am not, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of Hornblower. That's not my particular cup of tea. But it's hard not, hard to deny that the, there's an appeal there, that there, there's Patrick, an interesting Patrick thing. O'Brien. Patrick O'Brien, right. There's just a, there's a huge body of very interesting work not my personal cup of tea, but you but, mentioned you mentioned good. something interesting about no matter what you write, no matter what stories you tell, you have to deal with marketing and promotions people. And if they if they wants to call you a military science fiction writer, and there is a market for that, and they can sell to that market, or if, if they want to, if, if Nightshade wants to market Amelia as a zombie writer, despite the fact that there's a lot of co- the romantic comedy stuff in it, uh, do you feel like this compromise? Well, I don't get a vote. All right, let's okay. be really clear, right? You know, um, and in general, writers don't get the vote on the marketing material. That's just not how that shit works. So maybe it is a nightshade. Maybe you get to go in and work on the marketing materials. I don't know. But I'm the one who didn't realize I'd written a horror. There novel. you go. Well, See? Yeah, there. <laughs> right, right. So, so I don't, and I don't think, um, I don't think I'm the right person to make that choice for them. That's not my gig. It's not what I do. What I worry about is this. You know, I, I can control the words on those pages, right? Right. And what Bain does for me that I think. I give great praise to Tony, who acts as my editor. I do not tell her what a book is going to be about ahead of time. She gets no say in it. I absolutely refuse to do that. I hand it to her and say, this is yours, take it or leave it. And she takes it or leaves it. So far, she takes it. She publishes it, 
That's my part. I control what's in there. So if there's something wrong in those words, that's my fault. Hmm. The marketing, that's not me. But uh, I, I, I was praising Tony as being good for new writers a, a couple years ago to a, a budding young a woman who was a budding young writer. And Tony said, if by, and I said, she's great for coaching new writers. And, and Tony looked at me and said, if by coaching you mean leave my words the fuck alone, <laughs> yeah. then I suppose I am. But that's the, what I do. And so I feel like, you know, I, I have to leave the marketing the fuck alone, right? That's, it's not what I do. I, it's not the choice, the label I would put on my work, but I, you know, I don't get a vote in that. I find out, I find out when other people find out. There's this thing that happens when you write a book and it's your baby and yeah. it's your imaginary friends and it's your psyche and you think, you know, people are going to read this and, well, this was my first novel, so I actually pretty much knew that nobody was going to read it because I was not convinced I was going to sell it or have it published. Mm -hmm you know, you're just dicking around with your imaginary friends doing what you're going to do. And then it's suddenly out there in the world making friends with all sorts of disreputable people. And, <laughs> you know, th there's a part of me that's very invested in what do people think? What do people think of me? What do people think of my book? But those are different things. And and so it's 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 hard to divorce yourself and remember, like... I have let go of the baby, right? There's a stage that happens when you're looking over page proofs where every single page you turn over, you, you're saying goodbye to that part of it and you're letting it go. And, and I appreciate that you're nodding because I, I, I cried when I finished my page proofs. I was like, I, this is it. It's got to stand. I, that's all. I am the worst yeah. kind of auteur director. Yeah. I care about <laughs> the experience of you have when you read the page. When I get the page proofs in, I make about 500 changes on the page proof. They fucking hate me with cause. The typesetter's <laughs> like, I cannot believe this. She actually came up to me and Con and said, it's a good thing I love your books because otherwise I would kill you. And because I want to control your experience. And so when I have to finally pry the page proofs out, which I have never been on time doing, they lie to me about the dates now correctly, <laughs> correctly. <laughs> then that's it. But you know, the thing that I believe, talking about the marketing and everything else, that it, it boils down to this. I, I, I cannot believe this too strongly. It's what I say to writers. What you, your loyalty is to the fucking story. Your loyalty is to what you tell. You control that, you do that, you do that the best you can, and then that shit is gone, and what happens to it happens to it. And every time the noise in your head about the reviews or awards or Amazon ranking or any of that, that shit is distracting noise in your head, and your loyalty is to the craft, and that's it. That's it. That's all that matters. The rest is just distracting noise in your head, which is there all the time. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I look at my, I tell you my Amazon rank. It's, it's horrible. You know, I've, horrible. Uh, yeah, I've been told if if you don't get any one star Amazon ratings, you're not working hard enough. You're not ambitious right. enough. We, and I, was, so. I, I was doing this panel at Whitman, and uh, actually, oh, horrible. Like, we were at the Locus Awards earlier this year, and had a great panel discussion. I mean, it's one of the great panel discussions, because it was uh, Connie Willis, Nancy Chris, Walter John Williams, and Ursula Le Guin, and we were talking about advice to writers. And the number one piece of advice we all agreed on is don't look at your Amazon rankings <laughs> because the people who used to write you letters in crayon are now on Amazon like they're normal people. And secondly, it doesn't matter if Harriet Klausner likes your book. Thank <laughs> <laughs> <My> God. <laughs> but it's a part of game. It's it kind is. of a game. It's kind of a game. Yeah, but you know, it's the neurotic writer game. You know, like when you go into a Barnes & Noble, do you 
face your book out, you know? <laughs> like, like my kids, my kids better fucking face the book That's out. That's right. Told. That's right. You've got minions. You get in there. I've got minions. Get in there and face those books for it. <laughs> Sign your books. Chip, get, Chip, that's right. Chip Delaney got thrown out of a bookstore for signing his own books. Because yeah. Because this black guy doing it. My, my daughter texts me like, yeah, Dad, in a Barnes & Noble, faced him forward. All right. Uh-huh. Good. <laughs> good job. You can come home and have dinner now. That's right. <laughs> can, I, can I have a key now? <laughs> well, but also, I mean, every you finish a book and you think it's, it's like you say, it's your baby, it's unique, there's mm-hmm. never been anything like it. But I'm going to play the professor. I mean, I, I hired Gary to do that. But, <laughs> but it also, it comes out, it, it is, it's not just marketing. It's if you, talk, if you want to talk about your book or your book or, mm-hmm. about, or anything, you, you talk about it in relation to all the other books that came before it. Because it does wow. not, literature comes out of literature mm-hmm. as well as out of life. And so... Uh, marketing, we all understand, is evil shit that people like Jeremy do. But I think, I think but it's good shit when it works. Discussing literature in a critical way means that you have to create categories, and you talk and you you relate the book to other books, which means that you have to generalize. Yeah. So, well, yeah. and, you know. and science fiction is is in particular a field that is in constant discourse with itself. I mean, everybody, you know, talking about everybody's everybody else's yeah. shit all the time. Yeah. But what Amelia said about sending the book out there in the world and it's making its own friends. I had a conversation with Jack Dan, who's a very good novelist that's really underrated in the States. He lives in Australia now. Yeah, and Jack's been on the edge of breaking out several times oh, it, it, over Every, the every years. novel is going to be his next right. breakout novel. Right, and, and never was. And I don't know which, whether he or I came up with this idea, right? I've told this story to Amelia. But, and he was saying, look, writing a book is like you're packing a suitcase and, and you put in a cantaloupe and, and six roses and... Uh, and uh, a guy. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then it comes to the other end, in this case the reviewer or the reader, and I open it up, and there's a carburetor and a can of oil and some dead mice. <laughs> okay, who's wrong here? I mean, <laughs> yeah. All yeah, right. there's, there's the book that you wanted to write, there's the book you actually wrote, and there's the book that the reader reads. Right. Yeah. And, and this gets back to the, like, the story that we tell, right? Like the way that every single book we write is a conversation with every other book that happened. And when we talk about trauma, trauma is a way of like, and and you talking about the people contacting you about their own traumas and, and, you know, sort of saying thank you for letting me feel (laughs) like, you know, this is something I can talk about or uh, that is its own story and 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 that is actually i think the only way of healing from trauma is to be able to understand the story to be able to tell ourselves a story in a way that makes sense i've heard people say you know ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder is a normal response to abnormal conditions oh yeah Yeah, all, all my main characters have ptsd as do i is PTSD what you get when you finish the novel? Is that what <laughs> it can happen there. No, it's PTSD. <laughs> Ellen, you had a, a comment a minute ago, which sometimes your comments are interesting. <laughs> oh, man. Heckled from the front. I think I had a comment about 15 minutes ago that has now, now gone past, and I'll just All ask right. Mark about it later. Because right. um, it, it had to do with, with Dave Robichaud being the anti-mono hero. 
because yeah. he's, he's the, he, it, everything happens in his town. He yeah. never leaves. Um, and, and I was thinking of Jack Reacher and the Lee Child. Oh, movie. sure. Oh, Jack, he is the he, ultimate monomyth. He's the ultimate monomyth. Because he mm-hmm. never stays anywhere. Uh, Jack Reacher and the Lee Child novels are wonderful uh, suspense novels. Uh, Lee Child uh, is a transplanted Brit, lives in New York, and uh, I'd love to have his sails. I, I covet his sails with a with a deeply avaricious heart. And so the Reacher novels, the guy travels with a toothbrush and only since 2001 uh, with an ID. Mm-hmm. That's all he travels with. He Every book is set in a different city around the U.S. And uh, Child said that way he never has to have anything. He makes everyone up new, but he gets to have the same character. And he is... Uh, an, an almost stupidly archetypal character mm-hmm. in one sense in that he's huge and brilliantly skilled at everything and super smart and every time he goes into the hottest woman in town instantly fucks him and uh, <laughs> everything just goes his way uh, and, and he has these adventures the shit yeah, yeah exactly in, in fact in the last book shit happens while he's on the bus yeah. <laughs> you know? but, but Dave Robichaux is the opposite Dave Robichaux is and Dave Robichaux he's never, he is never settled. leaves trouble comes but he end. is always in trouble and always being kicked out and brought back in kicked out and brought back in and uh, if you don't know James Lee Burke in the best descriptions of an alien environment that I think are being written today are James Lee Burke writing about backwater Louisiana I mean they are better than any alien world descriptions be, uh, well, being one, written there's right actually now. There's one fantasy novel yeah. And oh, the yeah. Electric mist with the Confederate. Actually, dead. he's still seeing ghosts since. Oh, he still book. is. Every yeah. now and then, he's. Yeah, in the last, in the most recent one, yeah. uh, the Rainbow one. He, there's, there's. Yeah, a, he. There's, oh, there's, okay. a, but there's a mystical steamboat that keeps appearing. This is the Rova Show character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From uh, James Lee Burke, and this guy, this guy's the only guy I know. You know, the first line of your book has got to be good, right? You got to grab and people. And actually, I was thinking. I'm, yeah. I'm really glad you read it. I think it was Cecilia Holland who actually told me the first line of the book should tell you what's going to happen in the book. It right. should be a thematic overture mm. for what And he can book. get away with the first line being a description of the sunset on the Gulf. And you will be hooked by his language. The guy's amazing. Yeah, he's good. Cool. All right, we haven't got much. Let me ask another question. Cecilia, are you texting from any of your No, I was writing down the name. Oh, yeah, you know, I never read this Lee Chow stuff, but it sounds like a fascinating project. I know, I've heard from all, everybody I like. It's kind of like crack. Oh, see, she's exactly right, because you hate your, you know, you kind of read them and you go, oh, no way could he do that, turn the page. No way could he, oh, man, oh, she's going to fuck him. No, damn. How long is it going to take before she fucks him? And, and, then, and then you're 400 pages in, and the dude has got you hooked. And, and I'm after trying to. She came to my house, and she, and she said, I have something for you. And I said, I have something for you, too. And, we, and, and, and I said, I've got the new Reacher novel. And she said, yeah, I brought you that, too. Yeah, see, I'll tell you, I was at, I was at a BoucherCon sitting one table over from a uh, child and a guy telling a story on him. And this is the other part of coveting. This is how good this guy is in terms of sales. I was saying, yeah, I was at uh, dinner with Lee, and uh, his agent came over and said, oh, I brought you the Italian royalty check. Now, for those of you who mm. Italy is not your big royalty check, his Italian royalty check was $45,000. <laughs> okay, holy fuck. I mean, <laughs> sorry, writer. You writer better be lost. buying drinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, I think yeah. he does. Certainly. I mean, I don't know not the guy. Not forty-five thousand lira, because that would be a drink. No, 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 no. <laughs> that might not be a whole can. So. No, but I mean, the guy is like crack, and he's very, very good at what he does. But it sounds. I mean, I don't read out of. I don't read that genre. What do you read? 
Um, I read Jane Austen over and over. Mm. No, see, uh, <laughs> not really. I tend to read. I tend to read. Um, I don't read very much science fiction. I read. Uh, I like I like Victorian novels and uh, that kind of stuff and and. Um, just read a little James Jones. You told me. I, yeah, I just, yeah I did. I, I was kind of going back. You know, I you know I I, I have sort of um, um, I, I tend to read stuff that I think is going to elevate me a little bit. I don't read for fun. I, I read for fun, but I always think it'll improve me a little bit. So mm. it's got to be something a little bit famous or something. Fun. Generally. <laughs> no, it's true. Terry, fun improves you. Huh? Fun improves you. Actually, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the kind there. of fun Terry the kind has. of fun you can have. That's the problem. But I, I tend to, I, t I tend to, I, I know it sounds real snarky, but I tend to look for stuff, writers that I've heard of, and I think uh, I should have read. Um, I'm, you know, I should have read. So, you know, and a lot of times I, um, I mean, it's a whole other discussion, you know. But so, it, and and it, uh, you know. It's, it doesn't make for a very interesting reading list because I miss a lot of stuff. I, I envy. Fair. I totally envy you because if, you, if you're a reviewer and you have to read new stuff, and if I can if I can carve one week a month to read yeah. something on my own, and I've got this pile of stuff I have to get to. And yeah. no, I, I, I can't go back and catch up on. Yeah, well, I, like Cecilia said, I was telling her last. Uh, you know, I I had never read James Jones, and uh -huh. uh, you know, from here to eternity and and thin red thin line red and stuff. And so, it ju just in terms of American history and literary history and stuff, I went back and read it, and it's so different from what's written today, oh, and yeah. it just blew me away, and I thought it was fascinating. So it's kind of fun. Yeah, I get to read what I want to read. What I want to read, I tend to be, you know, I, look, I'm a middle-class kid from a small town, so I want to read stuff that's going to make me smart enough to move to the city. And, uh, but it, I wanted to ask... Uh, Cecilia a question if you don't mind because we were talking about violence and I do think uh, and uh, he thinks I mean, violence. right <laughs> because you no, but you 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 write of I'm, I'm not gonna sit here and scratch your head or anything but you, you you're I think very good at that mm -hmm. and I, do you have a how do you do you have a particular way you think you go this is a serious question that you go about it. you you write a lot about fighting and how do you do that? I think if I hadn't started being a writer when I was 12, I'd go to prison. Because hmm. I was really a violent kid. Really? Yeah. And I, I mean, other girls were out there waiting for their prom dresses. I was up in my bedroom practicing my quick draw. Really? I mean, it was, I, was, I stabbed a kid, not meaning to, when I was 13. And I was always getting in fights. And it was either, you know, wind up a bad girl, which I probably did anyway, or do or sublimate it. So I wrote about it, and I love writing those things. But also narrative sequences like that are really fun to write. They're, it's like being in a video game. Well, all right, but also I and you know we should have this discussion when you've read a scene or something. But there's a lot you leave out. It, it writing about violence that other people don't leave out. It seems like you you've you've come to say I, I wouldn't I'd almost say a formula. There's a way in which I recognize a a scene of yours about violence. It's sort of I mean, do you? I, I 
I don't understand the question. All right, you know? it's probably it's probably not a good it's, question. You know. Yeah. Well, I, I I think I know what you're getting at because there's you can tell when somebody is has spent too much time studying martial arts and describes every subtle move that goes into something. It's like reading a description of a ballet. Yeah. And when you strip that out and describe the actual moves that have effects, describe an actual fight in terms of what the effects are on the other person's body, it takes a lot less space. And I, and because bad fantasy writers do this, actually bad sword and sorcery writers do this worse than anybody. Yeah. You know that they've been spending hours with the OED looking at archaic words for sword <laughs> and, and, and trying to figure out how to describe moves that don't exist anymore. And it, it just right. it's like the research is sitting there like a blob on the page. And what you want to know is what happens to this person when this person gets hit with a... Uh, well, you, know, you know, i, I got to say that one of the problems there is that real violence is so different from what people want to read and what you will write for dramatic effect. Mm -hmm. You know, a tip, if you look at statistics from cops or anybody else, in the real world, the typical fight lasts less than 30 seconds, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Less than 30 seconds. In the real world, if I hit you hard in the nose, we're pretty much done. <coughs> Blood is gonna stream out and we're done. You're gonna stop. And the only people who don't stop are the people who are drugged up or the people who are pros at fighting. You know, if, if you, uh, I, I saw a guy who's a martial arts, a mixed martial arts instructor, and he said, if you hit somebody in the face and you break their nose, which is not that hard to do, and they don't change their expression and they keep moving forward, you are now fighting a pro. And you <laughs> have a lot of problems, right? Yeah. And, and so if you write a fight the way it really happens, and like if, if you are in a fight that lasts 30 seconds, do you know what the average recovery time is for a person? It is more than three weeks. Hmm. It's more than three weeks before you are f without pain from that 30 seconds. If you write that in your detective novel and then he healed, yeah. <laughs> right? You just go, what the fuck, right? Yeah, what the fuck? Three weeks pass and you're like, do, 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 do. And you know, in narratives, time compression is vital. We have to, because if it goes on too long or, or if we aren't compressing, we skip. And three weeks later, he's back out. But the problem is three weeks later, the trail is cold, blah, 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 blah. There's a bunch of real world things that you can't do. So very frequently narratives have to compress time or they have to elide time so that it makes sense, so that the story makes sense. And I think that it is fair that story logic isn't exactly real world logic to keep things going. I mean, I think there, there, there are collisions between the two and, and sometimes you have to violate real world rules in order to make stories that are compelling. I think, I think that's absolutely necessary. It just, it makes me think um, one of the reasons why we write and one of the reasons why we read is so that we can have patterns that we can recognize and, and then we can make our own judgments about our own decisions based on these patterns, these life experiences that are not ours. And I think one of the ways in which we can sell ourselves short is by not taking into account that the story has to keep going and therefore, you know, we can't judge ourselves by the like, you know, and then I bounced back. Yeah, of course, of course I bounced back because I'm in a story. But in real life, I might have to take some months and really like figure my shit out. Oh, yeah, like standard therapeutic rule of thumb is that if somebody is married, it's going to take approximately one month of processing time for each year of marriage before they're even in any kind of great shape. And yet, in story time, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to elide that or you're going to skip one of the two because it's not very interesting in the middle no. story terms. Um, there's 
aspect of science fiction, though, that you're able to bypass them without if you have a, somebody who's enhanced with genetics. Right, yeah, there's, there's, well, it's a that's exactly right. That's yeah. faster yeah. and that kind of thing, so you're able to... And compress, I do that. Yeah, compress time with that, in that regard. And that's one of the things that, when you're talking about these PI stories, one of the things that always fascinates me about that is, is that when you have a, uh, a PI, the reason why he's a PI and not a police officer is because he reports. Hmm. Is what? boring as hell. Oh, of course. You sit down and realize <coughs> that that one incident that that officer was involved in took six to 12 hours to narrate mm-hmm. for that police officer after the fact. The only time I've ever seen it successfully done on TV was Rebecca DeMornay did a movie with uh, a bunch of stuff in Chicago, Southern Chicago, hmm. where she's a homicide inspector and she gets involved in the shootouts. And she says, now I know why I don't get involved in these goddamn shootouts. <laughs> and she's sitting there for a good quarter of the movie. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, Lynn Lin Dayton's espionage novels were full of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You have you have this adventure, and half the novel is like, God, yeah, reports, <laughs> <more> reports. <laughs> That's you, right. get, you get the reports sent back saying we need more detail. Yeah. So it's but, and that was one of the things with with uh, the John and Lobo series that, that kind of the reason why I kind of lean towards that military science fiction as, as well mm-hmm. with their classification of it in Dane is, is that he is a special operator. He is not. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's not a run-of-the-mill soldier, which most uh, military science fiction deals with the elite, like, line soldier. Whereas he is not that kind of guy, but he is that special operator, which means he is really in the special operations kind of thing. So, And there really hasn't been a... Yeah, he has special skills that he gets to use and keep him moving. Well, it almost makes you think we should sometimes do a theme thing instead of an author thing, because it'd be fun to... To do, I'm not saying we should do it, really, but like, like but you kind of are. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> like fight scenes, have different ways they're handled, or, or mm-hmm. how do you handle, you know, things in science fiction, uh, like the uh, one. People come up and read their favorite fight scenes. Yeah, something like that would be fun. But let's do it another time. It's late. We should go. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, thank you all very much. If any, yeah, cool. And thank you, Gary, for well, visiting. Thanks for inviting me on. And thank you for your debut novel, <laughs> which um, I don't think it was as naive as you pretend it was. But <laughs> well, that's well, part of the naivete that I have right, to. Right, I understand. <laughs> and Mark, well, yeah, slide. cool. That's it. All and thank you all. Thank Come you. back and see us. <laughs>You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.